You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lasseter. This episode is a continuation of our occasional series where we feature startup tech nonprofits. Generally, we are talking with for-profit founders and CEOs, leaders. But today, we dive into the world of tech nonprofits, global literacy. Tensley Gallion is co-founder and executive director of Curious Learning. He holds a PhD from MIT Media Lab and an SCM in computer graphics from Brown University. He's developed interactive technology-driven projects for museums around the world. He's also developed media experiences through Disney, Warner Brothers, and an Emmy-nominated program for Discovery Kids. Curious Learning, the organization that he leads and started, works with partners to curate and localize and distribute and measure free open source apps that empower everyone to have the opportunity to learn to read. Curious Learning with Partners has curated thousands of free and open source interactive literacy learning experiences, reaching over three and a half million users. I'm personally chair of the board, so I'm very involved here. I am really excited to share more about the organization with you. On this episode, we discuss many things about the organization, but also how literacy is connected to so many other things. How competition and collaboration work in a nonprofit environment we talk a lot about limiting beliefs and what you can do to change them, how they hold the organization and others back. We also talk about the funding landscape for nonprofits and how Tinsley would reimagine it. So please stay tuned. Tinsley, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I'm going to be asking some more basic questions today on the podcast. I, I am chairman of Curious Learning, and I do know the answers to some of these questions. But uh, for the benefit of our listeners, I, I did want to start with some basics, if that's okay. That's great. Sounds good. So how did you get into this whole area of teaching kids to read? Well, that's, that's an interesting story. I, you know, my, my background of you know, is in both tech and in design. You know, I uh, did my PhD at the Media Lab in the early 90s and was actually at a kind of transition moment in my life where I was leaving a number of companies I, in some cases, had helped start and were part of. I was asked to come back to the Media Lab to teach and to be available to get involved in certain research projects. And there was a small consortium between three universities, between MIT, Tufts University, and Georgia State that was had asked the kind of crazy question at the time of could kids learn to read from just interacting with mobile devices? What had kind of happened is they had found a couple research sites in very remote Ethiopia where kids had had no access to school and no one in the villages or communities were literate, and they had seeded it with, you know, with tablets that the kids could use on their own. And after about a year, they were they tested the kids, and they were roughly at the same level they'd been at if they'd been in a well-resourced U.S. kindergarten, which was kind of astounding. I 
uh, by that time had become familiar with the project and was there at the lab and uh, started kind of rolling up my sleeves to look at what this meant and if this could be replicated and if this could be scaled, what kind of impact could it have on the world? And that led me down a path of kind of understanding this the state of illiteracy in the world and the impact it could have, which I can get into if you want to. Yeah, sure. Why is this important? What is the impact? What what I kind of learned at the time, and and these numbers these numbers are kind of pre-pandemic numbers, so we're still understanding what the what impact the pandemics had on this. But there's roughly you know 660 million children worldwide that will never learn to read, and another kind of 770 million adults that are functionally illiterate or completely illiterate. So you know that's it's roughly you know one and a quarter billion people on the planet who don't don't read. And that, much to my surprise, it is about two thirds of them are women and about 75% of them are concentrated in about 10, 10 to 12 countries, predominantly India and Sub-Saharan Africa. The net result of that is an estimated loss of about $1.2 trillion a year in global GDP. It's a, you know, it's a pretty massive problem. And the, and the pandemic's probably only making that problem worse, which we can, we only have inklings of, of how big of an impact that's going to be. But literacy is, you know, so fundamental. I think most of us just kind of forget how much it's a part of our daily lives. I, I sometimes try to wake up in the morning and, and try to not read things for a while and see what it would be like to, to not be able to do that. And it's nearly impossible to stop your brain from doing it once you've learned it and it's become so automatic. And yet we rely on it with almost everything we do all day long. And, you know, for somebody who can't, who doesn't have that resource, it just impacts everything you do. And the, the kind of statistics are like, what, 40%, you earn 40% more over the course of your lifetime. You live 26 years longer if you're literate. You know, there's direct impacts on your health, your ability to access resources or to understand how to take care of yourself and your health, how subject you are to being radicalized and its impact on world peace or or human trafficking or child labor, almost everything is touched by it. Yet all those things that we consider emergencies and need to be acted on quickly are, as much as they're directly related by literacy, literacy is never considered an emergency. So I became very intrigued with how this lever, lever could be used in a long-term basis to, to kind of change the face of the planet and how technology can play a role in making that a reality. And why aren't people learning today? You mean learning to read yeah. in these environments and situations? Uh, there, there are a number of factors. I think, that, you know, it's an interesting question. You know, in some cases, they're, they, they don't have the access to the resources they need. I think that's probably, a, the, you know, the dominant factor. There was a large push over the last couple of decades, you know, in a lot of low-income countries to get kids in school. But that didn't really look at the issues of whether the kids were actually learning or not in school. So, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, only 12% of the population reads at grade level by grade four. Um, so while the numbers have gotten much better in terms of kids in school, the schools aren't actually sufficiently teaching kids to learn to read. Lack of knowledge about how to execute, lack of teacher training, lack of resources, lots of pressures on those communities to, for the kids to be involved in other things. You know, if we don't, if you don't get a kid by the time they're about 10 or 12 years old in a rural community, the pressures to start working or, or do other things on behalf of the family kind of pull them out of the, the chance of learning to read. 
So I think it, it varies. But there are a lot of factors in the equation. And can someone really learn to read from looking at a smartphone? You know, that's a... <laughs> The, the data shows yes, but it's but there's a caveat there, which is that it's not just looking at any smartphone. There's been, a, you know, the history in the last few decades is just littered with in, instances where people felt like just handing out technology would help solve uh, educational problems, and it hasn't. There's been massive failures in that space. It definitely seems true and has proven out true that if you have the right kind of content and you activate the kid in the right way, that absolutely yes. You know, there are definitely kids that can learn to read. Uh, you know, we have a couple studies, one that was done, a small study that was originally done by UNICEF and the World Bank with Syrian refugees that showed that playing with some of the apps that we've curated and localized to other languages equated to about 22 hours of play on one of those apps equated to the equivalent of about two months of literacy learning in a well-resourced U.S. school. And a similar RCT that was done with about nine, across about 9,000 homes in northern Nigeria from the World Bank that just, the results are just now coming out, show similar kind of impacts and results. Now, that's, that's because there's a particular set of content that over years we've learned works well and is engaging to the kids. And in some cases, coupled with, you know, behavior change campaigns that incite the community to engage with the content. So under those kind of circumstances, it's absolutely true they can. Now, I guess the other, the other caveat of that is, is that if you look across any population of kids anywhere and you look at 100% of the kids, you're going to find that about somewhere between 10 and 20% of those kids are going to learn to read if, you, if they have access to any kind of material. They're, they tend to be predisposed to figuring out the reading code and they'll kind of get there if they have any kind of any real exposure to, to the material. And then there's roughly another 50 to 60% of the population who, if they have some more structure to their experience, they'll get there too. And then there's a last kind of 20, 25% that are probably wrestling with some level of learning dis difficulty, most likely somewhere on the spectrum of dyslexia. And they tend to need extra support. So I think the answer to your question is there's absolutely a, a huge percentage of the population who can learn to read from a mobile device with the right content. And there's, we're yet to learn how, how deep that can go and how personalized we can make the experiences to reach those that are, uh, may have a learning disability. Now, you mentioned some of these ed tech failures. What have you learned from that? Well, I think, you know, first of all, there was that there was the misnomer, I think, because the education community didn't understand it. And in some cases, they had the technology community didn't understand it, too, that just putting technology in the hands of people would would allow them to learn. Right. That was enough. And in the early days prior to touch screens, you know, there were people handing out laptops and there was a lot of great educational material on that front. But I think what was what was misunderstood was how, you know, what percentage of the population just couldn't adequately read. And if you can't adequately read, think about trying to use, and you don't know your letters, how do you use a keyboard as an interface to a computational device? And they are, it's, those symbols are meaningless to you at that point in time. And so uh, there was a, it seems obvious now, but then I think there was a, just a big mismatch between the idea that there were a certain set of early literacy skills that you had to have to actually access the technology. 
I think touchscreens change that dynamic, you know, dr dramatically. You know, mobile devices with touchscreens, if, if the app and content is designed properly, you know, in, in our early studies, we handed them out to kids in rural areas and we did no instruction. We didn't even tell them how to turn the devices on. And routinely, everywhere we went within about four minutes, some, somebody in the group of kids discovered how to turn it on and shared that information with everybody else. And that propagated, you know, across the group. And then they started exploring the apps. And there was this natural exploration that allowed them to, you know, become technically literate enough to use the devices. And then from that, engage in the learning content that was in the apps. So part of it's been a technological shift. Part of it has been a deeper understanding of, of how kids learn, too. And so what are some of those understandings that you've been incorporating into the software and learning experience? Well, we, in, in our early research days, and we're still doing this, you know, we would try a whole variety of different apps and we'd watch which kind of apps kids engaged with and spent time with and what they did as they used those apps. You know, that we learned that certain types of interaction were more conducive and receptive to kids. You know, it's amazing how many educational apps, you know, might put up written messages that expect a kid to read a message to know how to use the app. And that's, of course, if you're working with a preliterate kid, that's, you know, that's not going to work. But at the same time, there were apps that would put up animated characters and give long explanations about how things work. And that was almost just as discouraging to kids as, as, the, as something written, because what they really wanted to do was dive in and explore and just have their curiosity activated. So those apps that were what I kind of refer to as discoverable, which meant you could just play with them and over time understand how they worked and what you were trying to achieve, have, have proved to be the most effective. So not very didactic, more play, explore, see how it, how it goes. Yes, yes. But, but within a sandbox of material that we know from, from the neuroscience of how people learn to read, you know, it, it helps them develop the skills they need. So there's this interesting balance between giving them a certain amount of freedom, but doing that in the context of a, of a sandbox that's big enough to feel their freedom, but constrains them to a set of activities that, that move them forward on the skills they need to develop. And that seems to be, you know, right in line with a lot of the uh, neuroscience research that's coming out around not some of it specifically about the process of learning to read and some of it specifically about learning in general. And that the science is really starting to show that the more curious we are about something, this seems perfectly intuitive to us now, but the more curious we are about something, the more quickly and we learn. But what's interesting about that science is that it's not just what we're curious about that we learn quicker. It's just being in a curious state of mind that activates us learning about anything that we're exposed to after that, after we're in that state of mind. Wow. How do you get in that state of mind more often? No, <laughs> I, I certainly personally try to try to stay open and curious all the time. You know, a big, big part of that is not being you know, wed to one set of ideas about how something's going to happen, but to stay very curious about what's possible and what uh, what shows up for you on a daily basis. So if an opportunity shows up to you, 
being quick to dismiss it because it doesn't line up with your vision about how things are supposed to go shuts down that curiosity. You know, engaging with it uh, long enough to understand why it showed up for you and whether there's an opportunity or something to learn from it doesn't mean you do decide to engage with it, but that cultivates that sense of curiosity, I think. You and I have also had some conversations about limiting beliefs, and I think those can certainly hold you back from being curious if you feel like you've already got everything figured out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that kind of, I'll, I'll make a distinction here between, you know, it's kind of a subtle distinction, but it's a distinction between what I'll call intention versus expectation. Whenever we, you know, start a new project or at the beginning of a new year or whenever it is, we may set a set of intentions for ourselves, and that in the, the intention to realize something, right? And, but when we do that, we typically think of and formulate a, a shape that that intention is going to take. What's it going to look like? How, uh, how's it going to manifest itself, you know, down to, you know, exactly what it looks like. And that, that slips into the space of expectations. We have an expectation that it's going to manifest in that particular way. And there's a subtlety of difference here where if you can somehow stay at a, you know, do that practice, but let go of the form that the intention takes and be able to explore how that intention can manifest itself outside the form you, you think it should take, then you remain open to um, things that, that present themselves and opportunities that present themselves that could still realize that intention, but not in the form you envisioned, right? And I think limiting beliefs play into that to some degree. Um, certainly in our work, you know, we've, we've run into situations where we'll talk to, take for example, a ministry of education in, in Africa, which we speak to them all the time. And they'll, will be, talking to them about the prospect of using technology and apps in a particular way to help literacy learning. And they'll sometimes shut it down really fast because they'll have a belief that whatever you're doing has to be aligned with their curriculum, right? And so that belief that everything needs to be aligned with their curriculum means that they have a higher level intention, which is to see that all, their, all the kids in their country learn to read but they have the expectation that it be done based on the curriculum that they've already outlined, right? And so as a result, they shut down the opportunity for new ideas about how that higher level intention can be realized. That in my mind is what you would refer to as a limiting belief. And we all have them and it is real work to see them, discover them and transcend them. Some ways, I think that is the real work. And what's the one that's holding back the organization the most? Well, it's it's a good question. I don't know if I have the answer to that. Um, we, we, you know, we all have blind spots for our own limiting beliefs. It's easier for us to see the limiting beliefs of others than our own. And you know, I would say that we've mapped in the course of our discussions, you know, probably. 10 or so limiting beliefs that we, that either we've had or, or our partners have, and we're working to kind of try to shift that understanding to new, to new ideas. And that's part of, part of our work, I believe. 
And so some of those, like the, like the curriculum one and others, limit our ability to, to reach through particular ministries of education to kids. But which one is most limiting? It's probably the one we haven't seen yet, because <laughs> that's always the work, <laughs> Find, finding the new one, right? Of, that's of probably the one that's currently limiting us, right? Because as you see them, you start to transcend them. Of the ones that you've, you've seen in others or misconceptions about the organization, I'd be curious what comes up the most often. Well, uh, you know, before the, that's a good question. I don't know this one. There are three or four. Curriculum one comes up a fair amount when we're talking to, to ministries of education, less so when we're talking to NGOs. For a while there, there was a, the general consensus amongst the world that, that screen time was bad for kids. And that was a limiting belief that popped up fairly regularly. The pandemic has basically eliminated that discussion because everybody, I think, has decided that they're, they're, they just can't worry about that right now. They've got to figure out how to use technology to get to kids anyhow. So we'll let go of that one. That one kind of took care of itself. What are some others? I, I would say it's no one. I would say it's in different circumstances. It's different ones that pop up, that there's a repertoire of a half a dozen of them that pop up regularly right now. Thank you for being a loyal listener. One thing I'd ask is please consider joining our giving circle. We support startup tech nonprofits with our donor dollars to act as the angels to seed new organizations seeking to scale and do good. So please go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. I love to chat about being a tech nonprofit and the unique challenges there. When, when you think about doing a nonprofit, you've got a certain set of challenges and we think about building and distributed software. That's a separate mm -hmm. set of challenges and they don't always overlap. So how have you approached, you know, building a team or uh, building the organization, given that you're dealing with both, both nonprofit and tech? Yep. Yep. And, and, and maybe the, you know, the broader question that you're kind of, you might be asking too, is, you know, there are pros and cons to being a nonprofit versus yeah, a would love to hear about that. right? Yeah. And so, you know, there's definitely about, I would say in our early days, people saw what we were doing. And there was often when we were talking to prospective funders, there was so much excitement about what we were doing. They, they encouraged us to think about shifting to a for-profit model because they felt like the market was so big and there was so much opportunity. And it never happened for a number of reasons, which we can talk about. But I think there are, there's definitely some pros and cons to each. You know, we, we, in many ways, you know, you, we could have taken that path of being a, you know, a pro-social venture that was a for-profit organization that had a double bottom line, as people like to say. And what really came down to whenever it came down to the nuts and bolts of looking at, you know, an investor who wanted us to go that route was, you know, when, when I asked, when push comes to shove and we're a few years out from now and we can either, you know, make a few million dollars or we can reach, you know, tens of millions of kids with this, with this product, which, which one is going to, which went, which wins. And the investors routinely said the money wins. That is a double bottom line, but the money wins. And I wasn't willing to, to step over that line. We had founded the, the nonprofit specifically for the, the mission of giving everyone an opportunity to learn to read. And the people who most need that are those that, that are least able to pay for it. And so that was what really 
hinged our decision in that case. Now, there are a number of advantages that we found, you know, being a nonprofit. Everything we do is open source and completely either governed by an open source license or, or Creative Commons BY and license. And so as a result, we have no intellectual property issues. You know, like what I find, it's a huge relief is anytime we start a partnership, we a lot of times don't even need a written agreement. And if we do, it's like 90% of it is not needed because most most written agreements in the, in the business world are about intellectual property issues. And those go away when everything's open and free. So that's a that's been a huge advantage. We we can move we can move quicker and and without any legal fees or headache. It saves me a lot of time. That's definitely one advantage. Another another advantage probably is the um uh, you know we we made a decision to not, as long as there was another effort going on that was helping solve part of the problem or bringing certain resources to the problem, that we wouldn't compete with it, that we would work with it as long as it was open and free. So it's it's really meant that every conversation starts without any sense of competition. Uh, everybody's a prospective partner. And what you're trying to learn is how how aligned your your values are how much values alignment there are, and as a result, how where the mutual benefit can be and how you work together uh, based on those, those matched values. And that accelerates conversations tremendously too and means we're not, we're not rebuilding things that others have already figured out as well. I think I only answered about half your question. Yeah, but that's a lot. <laughs> Collaboration, you know, being able to not get hung up in contracting. But I wonder... Funding environment. How has that been different as a nonprofit versus for profit? Oh, very different. This is something that I'd love to see changed in the world going forward. Is that you know it's a very it's a very different prospect raising money for a nonprofit than it is for a for profit. There's a when you're there's a whole infrastructure and mechanism for you know for raising money as a as a startup as a for-profit and you can shop it around and talk to a bunch of investors and there is a natural sense of urgency that comes in that you know they're going to evaluate whether they want to do this deal or there's some concern that if they don't get in on the deal somebody else will and so things can move more quickly from the from the funding side for a for-profit in that respect for there's a lot of great philanthropic organizations that are ready to fund great projects out there. But in my experience, there's no sense of urgency from them. They're, they're kind of like, well, if, if you can get the money from someone else, you know, great, we'll keep thinking about it. And, you know, uh, they may never get back to you. So it's, it's really hard to keep a sense of urgency going. And it, it almost, you know, sometimes some nonprofits have have a situation where they're dealing with a crisis, like there was just an earthquake or a large storm that knocked out and they're trying to raise money quickly to, to provide aid to that organization. And that creates a sense of urgency that helps them raise money in that respect. But for long-term projects like like helping everybody become literate and there's it's not a life or death situation. It's it's harder. It's you in some cases, I think nonprofits create these kind of artificial senses of urgency just to get their donors to move. And that's that that's one one difference I've seen. You know, I think nonprofits in general are, you know, there's certainly a class of them that, you know, are trying to step in and do something for the community, either the world or their 
their smaller local community or their nation that is not being you know provided for by some other part of society by government or by other other nonprofits or and that's great and so some of these some of these nonprofits you know end up setting up large fundraising groups engines inside their organizations and that can be very intensive labor intensive there's one nonprofit i spoke to that had a team of people that and they spent roughly a half million dollars a year raising a million dollars right because the team of develop their development staff cost them a half million dollars a year to write tons of grants and and raise a million dollars and that just seems wildly inefficient to me but it's the it's the model that's been it's persisted for a long time if you're going to build a you know a long-term nonprofit that's meant to continue to provide a service to a community for effectively indefinitely the other types of nonprofits the way we like to think about ourselves are those that are coming in and trying to shine a light on something that needs to change you know actually provide a be a change maker in that space an agent of change and that may have a a fixed lifetime we'd absolutely love to be put out of business because everybody in the world learned to read right it's it's a very rare for a literate parent to raise an illiterate child so there's an argument to make that if we could get a whole generation of people literate that we'd be done that we could stop doing what we're doing yeah this is or, part of what i find personally thrilling the idea that yeah. it could be solved once and for all right right and and I, yet i think there are other there are other nonprofits that you know, start to provide a service that society deems valuable. And, you know, why isn't there some sort of exit strategy for them? You know, they haven't solved the problem and stepped away, but they've shown how to solve the problem in a way that government maybe should pick up the mantle for, right? So instead of going public, could a nonprofit actually get absorbed by the government and become, you know, become a public service? I think there's, I think there's some new models that are, that I hope I hope we can start to explore about what role nonprofits can play in our society, how they can more efficiently get funded, how um, risk investments are willing to take their take the risk on those on on those kind of opportunities, and that they can add to a, you know the larger scale of society via government or or other structures. I just don't think we've done we do that very well yet. And when you talk about scale, Curious Learning has reached something like three and a half million people with partners. Yes. How do you think about reaching more? Well, that's that's the kind of thing we're experimenting with right now. And and we're trying things that are very atypical for the, you know, for the education community, but absolutely typical for the tech community. Right. So for example, we just finished running, or we're in the midst of, it's not done yet, a, a series of ad campaigns, Facebook ad campaigns that advertise one of our early literacy apps in Nepal. And we've spent about $7,500 and we've garnered 120,000 downloads. So that's incredibly efficient in terms of actually reaching people and getting, getting them to engage with the app. That's one mechanism we're trying. The next step is for us to look at that longitudinally and say, of those people who download the apps, you know, how many of them play it for an extended period of time? How much learning actually transpires? You know, and if, and if as much as we hope is not happening, how do we activate that and engage that? 
So we're actually starting a study, a second study with the World Bank specifically on that that will span, you know, a bunch of different countries and will specifically look at using social media as a mechanism to reach and activate parents to get these apps in the hands of kids and to get a sense of, you know, what the demographic of those parents who are doing that and how engaged those communities are and how successful that that conduit can be. So that's one. And when you tell an institution like the World Bank or maybe some other potential funder that you're doing digital advertising to reach people in Nepal, what do they think about that? Well, I think for them, it's it's a pretty far out idea still, but they're open to it now. I think, you know, even just a handful of years ago, they w- wouldn't have been. They would have been fairly dismissive of it, I think. So I think in some ways the writing is kind of on the wall that this impact that social media is just has huge reach and that it's it's too strong a word, but irresponsible to even not look into it. So that's beginning to change. That that's a I think in many ways that was a limiting belief that's just starting to change. And it's taking its roots first probably in the uh, evaluation part of the World Bank, not the operations side. So the evaluation team who has more freedom to try new things and see how they work and do real studies on them is the place where it's starting. Yeah, the DNA of Curious Learning is coming out of university research. And Mm -hmm. you're now working with uh, an uh, experiment-oriented research part of the World Bank. I find that to be a fascinating connection. It is. And I think it's, I think, you're right to recognize this kind of experimental approach. And I think this links back to our earlier part of the discussion, which is that, you know, it is in our DNA to remain experimental, to be to be willing to try new things and to look for those things that haven't been tried before and, and think about whether they make sense to try and try them and look at the data as to whether they're really working or not. And that's a, I think that's a big part of remaining curious and, and also a big part of of staying true to intentions without getting wrapped up in expectations. What's the difference between the the university academic research orientation versus the tech startup A-B testing orientation? That's a good question. Well, there's certainly some similarities. Uh, You know, they both tend to be kind of data-driven. I think the you know, certainly the AB tech startup is is not um, subject to kind of peer review in the way that the academic research world is. So you don't get an academic paper published of, of significance without it going through a peer review process, which means you, you tend to have to be much more buttoned up, much more um, extensive in your scientific process. Uh, things have to look more like a real randomized controlled trial and not a, just an A-B test, or you have to make an argument for why why there's something to be seen here and, and have your peers you know, judge that and, and understand it. That brings a certain, that slows it down a little, but it also you know, does what it's supposed to do, which is keeps it more honest, right? You can, you know, you can almost always you know, find data to support your case <laughs> if you're married to supporting a particular case. It's different if you're willing to look at data open-minded and try to understand the learnings from it. And I think that academic process tends to try to hold people to the latter instead of the former. So that's, that's a difference. And I think that's why the, 
the randomized control trials, RCTs, have become kind of the gold standard in the development world for uh, how to study things uh, from folks like the World Bank or from JPAL and, and those organizations. Yeah, and they've been really pushing forward that kind of thinking and applying it to nonprofits and government programs to see what's a, right. what's effective and, to your point, what can be scaled up by government probably ultimately. Uh, yeah. We had um, Dean Carlin on a previous episode, one of the uh, co-founders of IPA, uh, who you mm -hmm. just referenced. So if people want to listen to that, uh, it was a fascinating conversation. Nice. And I, and I think that goes to, you know, our, our approach, you know, too, which is that this is what's unique about ed tech is that if you think about it, you know, traditionally education in general has been about create a curriculum, create a textbook in essence that embodies that curriculum. And then you print it and you ship it out there and you're going to run that curriculum for decades. And there is no easy way to study whether it's effective or not. It's so expensive to do that. And it's so expensive to create the curriculum and put it out there that you didn't really want to know whether it was effective or not, because there was nothing you could do about it. So now, if you think about it, technology effectively gives you the equivalent of a textbook that can be published and distributed overnight and can change day to day based on and can and not only that, it can observe the student and give you back data about how they're using the textbook and whether they're learning from it. And that's that's a paradigm shift for education, a massive paradigm shift that they're still just beginning to get their heads wrapped around. So that provides the opportunity and the data pathway for there to be a quick iterative process where the, you know, the educational material and the curriculum that's being provided is, is constantly changing and evolving to try to optimize on certain you know, learning happening that you can directly measure. Yeah, this promise of adaptive educational materials or software that is changing what it's teaching you next based on what you've learned already and what interests you and how you're behaving offers so much promise, but early attempts have not been that successful. Well, I would separate the two. I think part of what you're referring to is what people refer to as personalized learning, which is that, you know, somehow the system tests you or has a track record of your data and knows where you're at and knows what's next best for you to learn, Right. And if, if that's over exercised and you're actually leading person on a path of, you know, here's the next thing, here's the next thing, here's the next thing, you're actually inhibiting their ability to be curious about things because you're telling them what they need to do next, right? So back to the early part of our conversation, that potentially just totally slams you and says you, you feel like you're, you're shoved on a road of learning and you, you're in a cookbook process instead of act under, acting under your own agency, right? So there's a balance that needs to be struck, right? Which is understanding where someone's at, understanding what skills they need to learn, but not curb their, their enthusiasm and their curiosity for learning by over-personalizing, right? So that's one side of it. That's different than using the data to understand what learning material is actually moving the learning needle. That's independent of whether there's per, what, what's traditionally called personalized learning happening or not. And if you think about it, if you have 100 apps, uh, you can use data to, to find out which of those apps are actually increasing the skills that you need, need kids to learn. 
And if you can narrow it down to the 30 out of the 100 that are doing that, then you know that that's the sandbox kids ought to be playing within, right? So that's, those are, I'd separate those two issues. Okay. And can you do both while protecting a learner's privacy? I think so. You know, I think that certainly you can do, you can tell whether, whether certain content is being effective or not. You can certainly do that while protecting learners' privacy. We don't need most of the, you know, most all the data that we have access to that we get, we do on an aggregate basis anyhow. We don't have any idea who the individual is. We have no way of getting back to the individual. But we can see that, you know, these 10,000 people downloaded it and this is how far they got in it. And then over time, we'll be able to have them play a game that gives us some sense of how much learning has happened. And then as an aggregate whole, we can understand whether learning's happening or not without needing to understand that on an individual basis. So at that level, absolutely. We absolutely can. Personalized learning is a, you know, metric is a little trickier because there you have an individual ID of a person, but I think you can still do that with anonymity right? Uh, somebody logs on, somebody takes an assessment, you get some sense of where they're at, or they play a game that gives you some sense of where they're at. And then from there, you suggest a sandbox of, uh, of things that they could, they could do next or that they would enjoy doing next that would further their learning. And that can be done in, with anonymity as well. Is that the potential biggest risk in the work is, is somehow violating people's privacy? Or is there another risk that you think about? Uh, to learners or society in, in the work? You know, that's certainly one risk. Uh, there is pressure, you know, to, to kind of circle back to that privacy issue. There is pressure in the system, you know, to keep the data in a way that, that you can't identify the individual. We had a prospective supporter actually years ago when we were building out some of our tech and we were doing a fundraising effort to get some, some funding to, to build some technological infrastructure. He asked how much money we'd need and I threw out a number and he he expressed a willingness to give us that that money but in exchange he wanted access to the data in a decade and you know and whenever these kids you know turned kind of 18 he wanted to see the data and when I probed him as to why he wanted that he, he had a number of large companies and organizations through Latin America, and he wanted to be able to mine it for prospective employees. So he wanted the data to be connected back to individuals that he could approach about employment based on their learning trajectory over time. <laughs> I mean, I understand what his desire was. We, we clearly said no and felt like that was a, you know, a huge potential invasion in privacy. And... Uh, while at the time probably didn't invade the privacy of, you know, from laws in much of Latin America, it probably would eventually. So there, there is that risk because there's pressure in the system to utilize that kind of technology that way. I think it's a relatively easy thing to mitigate if you're willing to just never collect that data and never store it, which is where we've landed. Right. What? Do you see for the organization in, in five years of continued success? What will be have been achieved and what will the world be like? Well, I think I think probably most importantly is not the the numbers, you know, that we've reached by then or the 
amount of learning content that's been developed by then, although I hope in five years, both those numbers are big, that we've activated. We, we've somehow been a catalyst for facilitating many people trying new types of educational content and provided you know, a kind of a, a network over which to try to test those and understand how successful they were. And that the reach in terms of the number of kids that are actually engaging with that content has grown dramatically. I hope both those things have happened over these next five years on a, on a large scale, on, you know, on the order of you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, because that's where we need to get to. And, and we don't care if it's us that does it or we've just helped facilitate it. But I think probably the more important thing for us to have happen is to expose the limiting beliefs that are stopping, you know, technology from, you know, actually facilitating this change in education and that some of those have started to be broken down. That's probably the most important thing for us to try to accomplish over the next five years is to uh, open the eyes to people about how that can be different. A simple example of how we do that today is uh, if we have, we've started doing this, that if we have a meeting with a ministry of education coming up, that will like the week before that meeting or a few days before that meeting, we'll run Facebook ads that are targeted for the communities of their country, particularly those around where the employees of the Ministries of Education live with advertising for downloads, um, some of the apps that we have. And what that does is almost universally when we get on the call, somebody on that call has seen those ads or somebody has told them about those ads and shared them with them on Facebook or somewhere else. And they've already heard about the apps that we've been involved in. And they've already understood that social media can reach people and that people are willing to engage with them as a result of social media. Now, if we didn't, well, before we were doing that, we would spend the first half hour, 45 minutes of the call, just convincing them that this was even a possible way to go, that social, using social media to reach their, their constituents was even possible. And in many ways, sometimes we wouldn't even get past that hurdle. So using the technology to break down those beliefs is probably you know, one of the things that would be most valuable because then it opens the minds of those organizations to seek out not just what we're doing, but what other people are doing to try new things. I love this story. It's just going directly towards action, starting to do it and providing people real world feedback on does it work or not? And is it useful? Uh, I also like what you just expressed about, you know, lighting that spark, uh, which may result in that ministry of education working with other organizations, but because of the nonprofit mission uh, and the dedication to the broader work, that's not necessarily seen as competitive, but as an opportunity for collaboration and each, and really fulfilling the mission. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we probably have to wrap up. I, I would like to ask you, how can people find out more about Curious Learning online and, and follow up with you? Yeah, um, curiouslearning.org is the place to go to start and look if you have specific things about the organization there is a form there you can fill out if you have you know want some relationship to the organization specifically if you want to reach me individually my email is tgallion t-g-a-l-y-e-a-n at curiouslearning.org so wonderful tensley thank you so much for doing this thank you thank you yeah it's great having you nice to be here 
If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website, 